All right, well, shall we get started? Seriously. Hello, everyone, and welcome to yet another episode of The Problem with Reading. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. And I'm Sam. And here we are, recording, if not earlier than we ever have, then pretty close to it. Um, I don't know actually how awake I am. I'm, so, I'm still sort of recovering from, like, the, you know, post-five o'clock collapse. Um, how, how are y'all doing? Uh, pretty good. Just uh, just finished writing up my summary that I definitely didn't procrastinate until the last minute to uh, do. The only way to be, Stephen. It's the only way to be. Absolutely. No, I, I didn't procrastinate my summary quite as much, but pretty close. So I was up until two last night writing it. Dang, man. And reading. And then I got up today and was doing yard work. So. Oh, yeah. And uh, what, what kind of yard work were you doing there, sir? I was painting. We were painting a fence, whitewashing a fence. And I didn't find a bunch of children to uh, conscript into doing it. So I was doing it myself. Like white picket fences. That's just instantly goes to mind like an illustrated kid's Tom Sawyer. And I don't remember what happens in the scene. He, he's whitewashing a fence, right? And does he like mm-hmm. pay someone a nickel or like a like a half an apple core or something in order no. to finish the fence for him? No, no, better. Yes. No, no, it's better than that. He convinces the kid that he wants to be yeah. painting and that it's like right. a That's really right. desirable thing. Marketing. Pres- yeah. It's amazing. It is. Yeah, he has yes, 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 honor, it. and he trusts the kid with the duty of painting the fence. And then his aunt comes out, and he's got an entire like row of kids just painting the fence for him. Yeah, yeah. and that's how you start a cult, folks. No, no, you want to do my laundry? Force wave. Amazing. Um, speaking of good books, though, I did just finish uh, my second uh, read of uh, a Canticle for Leibowitz. Man, the humanity just can't quite get its act together. Sick tran- transit mundus. Scale of one to ten. Uh, or okay, so let's say one is I'm gonna live in the middle of a city and uh, interact with strangers with no rhythm to my life. Every day will be a random, self-determined adventure. To ten being I'm going to live in a monastery and I won't speak unless Father Superior allows me to give me express permission to open my mouth. Um, how many? Where were you before the book and where are you after the book? Uh, well, so this was my second reading of it, um, but admittedly, even so, uh, like, maybe a, a five or, uh, probably four or five before, and then now it's, like, looking up local monasteries and kind of want to, kind of want to go, and all of a sudden Catholicism seems so much more attractive, and, oh, wait, that's there pretty There are that, monasteries. That, okay, no, that's true, but, 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 I mean, this is a distinctly Catholic uh, book and, and a Catholic monastery. Um, yes. It's also a pre-Vatican II Catholic book, so I mean, you know. It is It is pretty cool that, you know, like in the case of a nuclear apocalypse, the and, you know, we're plunged into, a, you know, a new Dark Ages, the Catholics are like, oh, we got this. We know what to do. Mm-hmm. No problem. We've been in charge. <laughs> we, we were in charge then. We'll just step right up and take over. No, absolutely no worries. Well, Revan, <laughs> you and I were commenting when we were at the, the Dominican... Um, I'm not sure. It's not a monastery, but uh, the uh, yeah, House of Studies, yeah, yeah. When we were at the Dominican House of Studies and and observing the their worship and whatnot, and I, I remember you commented and said like, "Yep, this is the sort of thing where you can just see they'll be they'll be seeing these prayers as as the bombs drop. Like nothing short of death will and death and destruction will stop them from from doing this." Which man, there's something to be said for that. Indeed, indeed. And uh, monks also, uh, as it so happens, make really good beer. Uh, speaking of beer and assorted drinks, Sam, what are you drinking? I'm drinking a nice cold um, yonder dry cider. It's a little uh, cider, cidery? What did, what did you even call it? Cider pressery? I don't know. Cidery, uh, cider house? I think cider press instead of pressery press. would probably. Okay, cider press. It's a cider press in Wenatchee, Washington. A little local um, cider. It's good. I, don't nice. know, I like it. Very, very dry, which is how I like cider. So I have some uh, some fond memories of going to um, I always forget the name of it, but the one cider place near SPU. Yep, yep, that's oh, the one. Shillings. Yep, Shilling. Good times. Uh, yeah. Well, as for myself, uh, I'm I, I'm not drinking cider, but a a good friend was in town, and in fact, uh, the the original third leg that is the tripod that is this podcast, uh, Thomas was here. And uh, he picked up a case of uh, Sapporo premium beer. Um, so I'm, I'm finishing off that, that uh, six-pack as we talk. So uh, come pie to you, Thomas. Uh, may your return to the podcast be eventual. 
Um, but I, but you know, even if you do come back, nothing can ever take the place of Sam. So um, he's the only reason that people listen to us at all. Yeah, honestly. Uh, and Stephen, what are you drinking? Well, uh, Sam, great minds think alike. As I am having a cider as well. This is a uh, a pear cider, and it's about halfway between dry and sweet. I've actually found I really like pear ciders. Um, hmm. Probably more than apple ciders, if I'm being honest. Apple's just overdone. I mean, yeah, you can make a strong case for that, I think. Mm. I did have a good apple cider last night that um had a good amount of cinnamon in it, I think. Like uh, cinnamon mm. and uh, like an almondy, nutmeggy sort of feel. And I typically don't go for that sort of flavor, but it was, I mean, it tasted like you were drinking an apple pie. It was excellent. All right. Well, you know yep. what, what drinking an apple pie sounds like? That That sounds like as if we've taken uh the world that we've planned the recipe that we've planned and constructed inside of our heads externalized it and then re-internalized it in, as a simulacra and then re-externalized it again so that we've you know represented the world like two layers deep to us instead of you know just drinking apple cider now we're drinking apple pie apple cider uh you know and it's 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 just you know this horrible levels of of um self uh, it's a hall of mirrors is what I'm saying. Uh, and you're causing it. And, and that's called modernism. Uh, and, and that's our chapter, uh, this, this, this week. Uh, I forget what the chapter title is called. Did, did I, either of you guys actually write it down? Cause I didn't I think modernism and postmodernism. Well, anyway, yeah. I'm off the hook uh, for summarizing it. So I will leave it to you too. That transition was seamless. Uh, the modern and postmodern worlds. Uh, so indeed, uh, yeah, I have the honor of the first, uh, the first half, and uh, so we finally arrived at the modern era after Miguel Chris' uh, two-page summary of the Industrial Revolution, which I'm still admittedly a little bit bitter over. He now gives us a full, like, 20 pages dedicated to modernism. Finally, that, that good, good man. Um, so, uh, modernism, the era dedicated to the power of the meta-narrative, to the power of progress, and unfortunately, those meta-narratives and progress resulted in trenches, gulags, and concentration camps, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. Uh, so the Industrial Revolution was the genesis of modernity, uh, kicking off the process of social disintegration, uh, though McGilchrist points out that this disintegration could also trace its roots to Comte's idea of society as a collection of atomistic individuals rather than a sort of cohesive whole. But, We'll, you'll be you'll be getting a lot of left brain right brain tropes, and this is kind of the first of them. Uh, scientific materialism and bureaucracy disenchanted the world, according to Weber, an idea that we've already explored a little bit in our discussion of a secular age, uh, though from a different angle. Capitalism and communism alike both came to view people as value or utility. Uh, so abstraction, rule structured bureaucracy, and um, and a, a viewing of people as uh, utility rather than as um, uh, as individuals or as beings. Uh, this should be sounding familiar at this point. Uh, the right hemisphere's desire for home or belonging is also usurped by mobility, consumption, and increasing urbanization. The worker sees this disruption of space as a disruption of time as well. For one's home has a past, a history. One's fifth apartment that has been lived in by countless unnamed tenants does not. Additionally, the dominant philosophy of the age re revolved around certainty, logical positivism perhaps being the worst offender. Recall that certainty is the do domain of the left hemisphere, and the Vienna Circle, a group of philosophers and mathematicians in the early 20th century, make an excellent case study of this, with its, its insistence that, quote, synthetic statements which fail testability in principle are considered to be cognitively meaningless and give rise only to pseudo-problems, end quote. Uh, and there I'm quoting from uh, Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy. Uh, to be fair, they do consider the realm of logic and reason to be valid, but only insofar as it can descri describe relations between statements. This is similar to Hume's fork, and it similarly calls for the removal of all metaphysics, going even further than Hume in saying that a metaphysical statement doesn't even have the decency of being right or wrong, it's simply vacuous of meaning, a collection of words strung together devoid of content. Uh, so th those were primarily the, the worst offenders, although, I mean, that, that sort of line of thinking was everywhere. Uh, we now, it, seemingly a bit abrupt of a, a, a turn in reading this, but uh, we turn to schizophrenia. Uh, McGilchrist noting that unlike other mental illnesses such as melancholia and manic depressive disorder, schizophrenia has seen a massive increase in cases since the Industrial Revolution, but especially increasing in the modern and postmodern eras. Uh, more on that later. The culture of the West itself seems to have symptoms. Uh, Louis Sasse, or Sass, in his book Madness and Modernism, comments that the world picture of modernism and postmodernism and the experiences of schizophrenia are disturbingly similar. The most important one being what Sass call, calls hyperconsciousness. Quoting McGilchrist, elements of the self and of experience which, which normally remain and need to remain intuitive, unconscious, become the objects of detached, alienating attention. 
and levels of consciousness multiply so that there is an awareness of one's own awareness and so on. Everything gets dragged into the full glare of consciousness, end quote. In addition to this is what Sass ter terms ipsidity, or ipsidity, uh, whatever that is. Quote, a loss of the pre-reflective grounding sense of the self, end quote. These and other symptoms of schizophrenia produce, quote, two apparently opposite positions which are in reality aspects of the same position, omnipotence and impotence, end quote. When there is no self, when one is unable to move because they can't process, or they can't proceed from the idea of moving to the embodied reality of moving, powerlessness. But if, quote, all the observing eye sees is in fact part of the self, with the corollary that there is no world apart from the self, end quote, this is akin to godhood, just a perverse kind. All of the, uh, the above culminates in what Sass, echoing Heidegger, calls, quote, an unworlding of the world, a loss of the sense of the overarching context that gives coherence to the world, which becomes fragmented and lacking in meaning, end quote. Kafka, the speaker of modern consciousness, says in his diary that introspection, quote, will suffer no idea to sink tranquilly to rest, must pursue each one in conscious, into consciousness, only itself to become an idea, in turn to be pursued by renewed introspection, end quote. This sort of never-ending maze of mirrors is exactly what the left hemisphere is known for, and, again, similar to what the schizophrenic experiences. The result is extreme alienation. Quote, the self-conscious and self-reflexive ponderings of modern intellectual life induce a widely recognizable state of alienated inertia. What is called reality becomes alien and frightening. End quote. Another hallmark of hyperconsciousness produced by schizophrenia is the disintegrating stare. Recall the all-seeing eye that is the trope of, in the paintings of known schizophrenics. Disturbingly, this is a hallmark of modernism, and in particular, modernistic art. Quoting Susan Sontag, quote, Traditional art invites a look. Modernist art engenders a stare, end quote. McGillchrist goes on to say, quote, The stare is not known for building bridges with others or the world at large. Instead, it suggests alienation, either a need to control or a feeling of terrified helplessness, end quote. Neuroscientist Michael Gazzaniga Gazzaniga calls the left hemisphere, quote, the interpreter. Oh, no, no quote, just he calls it the interpreter, uh, which ipso facto means it needs to interact with things outside itself to interpret. It needs something to interpret, that is. Relying on the left hemisphere alone leads to an endless self-referential maze of mirrors, to words about words and speech about speech, ultimately not connected to reality. Quote, but meaning can only come to the representational world by allowing a betweenness with the world it represents, as words need their real world reference to have meaning, end quote. Paradoxically, the left hemisphere either imbues everything with a strange and bizarre meaning or empties them of it. The schizophrenic is either is convinced that the color of a shirt or the bird flying nearby must mean something greater, this being the result of the implicit not being understood. But the stare also devitalizes an object, rips it from any context and therefore any meaning. We're left with either the sinister world of meaning that we can't comprehend, or the gray boredom of the world bereft of meaning. McGilchrist goes again into boredom. That is a that it is a left hemisphere phenomenon, particularly engendered by modern consumerist bourgeois society. Mulekris has already discussed modern art as alienating, and he went into an aside that shock, shock art rose as a response to this, a desire to pull the viewer back into themselves. Here he says that so too a bored society will attempt to shock itself with novelty, falling into, quote, a vicious cycle between the feelings of boredom, emptiness, and rest restlessness on the one hand, and gross stimulation and sensationalism on the other, end quote. Spirit and matter are two separate things according to the left hemisphere, and leaning into this has a profound effect on art. With the right hemisphere's mode of being, the realm should interpenetrate, but note that the modernist artwork is either concrete or abstract. It is Duchamp's urinal or Malevich's black square. Note bene that a schizophrenic has a similar reaction to the Rorschach blot. They'll either describe it in very literal terms, this is a blot that is three inches wide, two inches tall, and the strokes are such and such, or they'll describe it as some abstract concept like motherhood or democracy. The left hemisphere is very fond of abstraction, but also of inanimate things, abstractions to categories to categorize and tools to use. Mielkris then goes on to dedicate several pages to document the rise of mental disorders that are characterized by right hemisphere hypoactivity and left hemisphere hyperactivity, such as schizophrenia, MPD, anorexia, and bulimia. It includes an uh, anecdote of a sufferer of anorexia who, after experiencing a stroke that damaged her left hemisphere, reported a full recovery immediately. Uh, so that that itself was, uh, I, I found very fascinating. Um, but on the whole, while the evidence he presents is interesting and compelling, the thrust of it, it can be summarized that they display typical left hemisphere modes of being and that there's been a rise since the Industrial Revolution. I'll conclude my summary with a short section in which McGilchrist discuss, discusses the disturbing fact that Western society is, in some ways, a society that encourages these unhealthy mental illnesses. Quote, the development of mass technological culture, 
urbanization, mechanization, and alienation from the natural world, coupled with the erosion of smaller social units and an unprecedented increase in mobility, have increased mental illness, at the same time that they have made the loner or outsider the represent representative of the modernist era, end quote. He notes, quote, social isolation leads to exaggerated fear responses, violence and aggression, and violence and aggression often lead in turn to isolation, end quote. Irony, distance, and cynicism have been put at the forefront, empathy being left behind. He contends that this re reproduces the experience of the schizophrenic, and even more shocking, quote, people with schizoid or schizotypal uh, traits will be attracted to and deemed especially suitable for employment in the areas of science, technology, and administration, end quote, noting that these fields are hugely influential in our society. He concludes that this fact helps push society down further that path, a positive feedback loop of disintegration, abstraction, and the alienating stare. On to you, Sam. So then he goes into um, a discussion of art. Uh, he starts with um, aesthetic, uh, I, I always mispronounce this. He starts with aesthetic, aesthetic, okay, someone help me here. Aesthetics? Aesthet no, yeah, it's aestheticism. Aestheticism, oh, okay. there we go. He goes into aestheticism, which is basically the idea of creating art for art's sake. And initially he says, well, we think that this is like a, a great exaltation of the value of art, but really this is a devaluation of art. It's a devaluation um, because you're removing all the emotion and the meaning from the painting and its application to our world. Um, we shouldn't, he basically makes the statement that we shouldn't be creating art for art's sake, but we should be judging it for art's sake versus modernity flips it around. It creates art for art for art's sake and then judges it by its purpose and by what it accomplishes, which completely removes all emotion or devotion that can be seen in the painting. Uh, talking about uh, Ducio uh, and uh, Degas as examples of painters who get caught up in the emotion of painting. He talks about how the modern world is uh, fragmented and art can't exist in a world that is entirely fragmented. It must have some basis in something. And so either art can portray the world as the left hemisphere does, um, as discrete parts um, and pieces, or it can create a great work in opposition to it. By accepting the left hemisphere manifesto um, as a substitute for the experience of the world, um, all art is subjective. It's only existing within this empty frame. Um, and modernism was, let's see here, sorry, I'm getting lost in my notes. Um, but it also gets to um, exalting the power of modernism. Uh, he then kind of goes into a lot of different tangents into modernism and what it symbolizes, uh, primarily is capable of great power, but this great power leads it to fascism, trying to control um, our political systems. Uh, the left hemisphere manifesto also involves a complete erosion of empathy. Again, art for art's sake. You're not using it to convey a message to somebody or to relate to a person, but merely for the value of art. Um, and it leads to a fascination of war as seen in futurism. Also, he talks about totalitarianism and how it is um, it's always going to destroy good art. Um, all art must have purpose. And he goes into a lengthy quote from Lenin talking exactly about that, how he will use art for specific pieces and for specific aims, but art as a whole is meaningless. At this point, there are two routes that the um, person can take. Either they can see the um, see the problem as a contingent loss of authenticity um, of, that is found in the right hemisphere world and try to re-engage that right hemisphere, or they can see the right hemisphere as intrinsically um, inauthentic and remove it entirely. Again, going back to the shock art that Stephen was talking about. Uh, Skolovsky, uh, talks about how the um, the opposite of this left hemisphere response is uh, habitualization, which is uh, Tolstoy. Tolstoy basically goes through this exercise of describing what it means to feel something for the first time, and this exercise is allowing the user or the not the user, but allowing the creator to feel something and to convey feelings um, in reaction to this left hemisphere world. Um, originality is. Or he gonna quote uh, Steiner by saying that originality is antithetical to novelty. Um, he makes the interesting point that all art must happen within a tradition, because if it is not happening within a tradition, there's nothing for it to refer to or develop from. All art is referring and developing from things. Modern art is art as the left hemisphere would view it. And um, he talks about how Valerie uh, gives a left hemisphere view of the body as this entirely mechanical um, machine that is distant from the person. He goes through all the different forms of modern art and how they all connect to the left hemisphere um, on page, I lost it here. Oh, it's on page uh, 416, which we don't need to go through, but it's 
basically everything in the modern movement is all connecting into abstracting uh, different pieces of our lives or throwing away, basically, as I think of it, pieces of the puzzle to get to a certain concept. So whether we're moving time or relationship or shape um, from the concept and then getting at it in that way. Uh, thinking Picasso of jumbling up the parts of a human and then throwing it together. He then it takes a turn into music. Um, he makes a statement that music is the most embodied art, which I say is absolutely true. Um, and it brings back earlier in the book when you talk about music being very you know, full body engagement. Um, he gives this interesting anecdote about some Benedictine monks who were forced to stop chanting um, in the wake of Vatican II due to different things. I don't know, Brevin can talk about that later. But, uh, and they had disastrous consequences. It was confetti everywhere. Confetti was everywhere in the monastery and they all got sick, um, which they, they, they started falling apart. They were able to, they used to be able to live off of four hours of sleep a day. And all these monks got sick. They couldn't focus. They couldn't do anything until they started chanting again. Um, left hemisphere manages to even abstract music, even though it's fully embodied. Uh, Schoenberg talked about how, uh, quote, how it sounds is not important. Now popular music has been entirely reduced to rhythm, uh, which ironically is the one part of music that's controlled by the left hemisphere. Uh, he he t t does say that Nietzsche saw this coming where Nietzsche was talking about how joy is being transferred to the brain uh, in a very lengthy passage that he quotes, which I thought was fascinating. Basically, even us thinking ourselves to joy and that leading to music that, while theoretically joy bringing is utterly horrendous to listen to. Looking culturally, there's a universal agreement about what consonant and pleasurable music um, uh, consists of. There's, uh, we, all cultures have some semblance of melancholy music using wide chords. Um, certain intervals are more pleasurable than other ones. And harmony requires the right hemisphere. It requires maturity in order to understand this depth. Um, he, I mean, I love this entire music passage where he's throwing out all these different, these different little facts about like Bach here, where Bach is horribly dissonant all over the place but it works because it's all contextualized. Um, modernism creates melody by hacking it, by instead of contextualizing it, saying this note is the perfect note here. Well, maybe, but it's not contextualized within the other, the, the rest of the, of the piece. He is sure to say that there are many excellent products that come out of modernism. Uh, Benjamin Britten, Philip Gra Glass, uh, James McKellen, all those are excellent composers in his eyes that really continue to develop music from where it has, has been um, into new forms and new and uh, new styles, along with the entire style of jazz, which is entirely focused on context, even though it's also very spontaneous and um, within a strict form. He um, defines beauty at this point, which I think he should have probably defined earlier in the chapter, but he defines beauty as the organic whole, which shows harmony between its parts. Um, and I think that's an excellent definition of beauty. It's universally appreciated by all cultures and any cultures. Um, he talks again about how there are Western art exhibits in China and people in Asia love Shakespeare. Well, we are fascinated with Japanese and Chinese and Korean art. All these forms of art are universally beautiful. Um, and so even if we um, abandon conventions, they still exist and that beauty will still continue to exist. Um, which for, for somebody who's tried to steer away from the theological as much as he has, it's very interesting that he's making this argument for universal beauty here. Um, language, however, is different. Language must follow conventions. You, if you don't have the conventions to language, you don't have it. And so that's why he says that modernity has yielded some of the greatest poetry ever to be written. Music and art fall apart in modernity because you can um, declare that you must be um, intuitive, you can intuit everything, and then all of your expression is just meaningless. It makes no sense. But modernism has actually helped liberate and unleash the intuition within poetry and um, cinema, because those are constrained by a set of principles that if you remove the principles, you, you lose the thing. There's nothing on the page except for random letters, which a side note that has happened in poetry and most people agree it's disastrous. This does bring him into the point that cinema is also one of modernity's greatest artistic achievements, which I just thought was interesting. Then, sorry, it's going a little bit long, but uh, then he goes into postmodernism, uh, which is basically the draining of all this meaning that has been built up in um, these few great modern art forms. All rules um, that allowed for meaning to come forth and are, are actually seen as self-referential and therefore meaningless. 
Uh, he then talks about, again, Sass talk, um, discussing schizophrenia. Uh, schizophrenia is a distinctive combination of superiority and impotence. And postmodern lit literary criticism fits the bill perfectly. It is a total loss of power to say that there's any meaning absolutely, but it also takes this arrogant and superior stance by pointing out just how the art is really just in the control of social norms, and that's everything. And so this paradox um, is what uh, or what defines the postmodern age of art. The right or how art is expressed is where it gets its meaning, um, as the right hemisphere apprehends it. And artists are left without that uh, meaning, playing games with their audience. They're bringing forth the themes and then being forced to subvert them instantly. It's basically shock art, but the entire piece, the only meaning is just subversion of it. it is, art is all art is reduced to its primary means of what is being done. And there's no, um, let's see here. There's no, I mean, there's, there's nothing being done when it's reduced to just putting paint on a page. Humphrey even talks about how we can explain consciousness uh, reductively. It's basically just a feedback loop and then self-aggrandizement of that feedback loop. McGillicrest says it's a good explanation of why we experience what we experience, but it's not a good view of what or how this came about. Again, looking at how the left hemisphere will look at this, the, the phenomenon, but it's not looking at the broader picture. Uh, following um, this, this uh, explanation from Humphrey directly follows uh, Philip Ghost, a marine biologist and fundamental Christian, who talked about how basically fossils are there um, put there by God in order to test our faith. Again, a very left hemisphere view of everything being there for a specific reason instead of for a broader context. He does praise many of the moderns who are able to put doubt um, into the capability of humanist understanding, uh, mainly Nagel is one of the ones who stands out, who I've always enjoyed. And he falls into the tradition of Buddha, Socrates, and even St. Paul in, in emphasizing how the human understanding is uh, weak. Uh, scientific materialism and postmodernism share the exact same left hemisphere roots. And then he goes into this last point, this is my final bit, uh, about how the Enlightenment is, which is very left hemisphere, is not the same as postmodernism. Um, but yet postmodernism is still left hemisphere, and it deals with levels of consciousness. Uh, the Enlightenment is still recognizing the world as existing. It's just trying to piece it apart and figure out its constituent pieces. Um, this leads to the conclusion of of romanticism, that basically everything is constantly shifting and we have to be able to hold the parts as disparate. Postmodernism gets to something deeper. It calls a self artificial, and therefore it affirms definitively that there is no reality, thus getting us caught in the loop that we cannot escape from. There's a difference between the unknowing believer and the unknowing atheist, and the right hemisphere is still reaching for something that cannot be known for the unknowing believer, while for the unknowing atheist, the left hemisphere is completely closed off. Um, if it cannot be known, must therefore not exist so i enjoyed this chapter obviously there was a lot here um, it was a very solid chapter yeah probably one of my favorite ones so far i i definitely th this one was more trivial thing that i liked but i definitely liked his smirking um uh grin as he was writing out how like he was sarcastically calling um uh who who was it, the the scientist um describing consciousness uh humphrey oh yeah, yeah. he was described like tongue-in-cheek complimenting his argument and being like, this is a spectacular move if you want to, like, avoid all reason. Um, or something like that. <laughs> uh, oh, what was it? Uh, as a strategy for accommodating a mind-bogglingly mind-boggling difficulty into the existing paradigm without having to actually to alter the paradigm, it is, in fact, spectacular. Um, and then he goes on to call him a biblical fundamentalist without the biblical. It just, man, this yeah. guy knows how to burn. It is pretty fun, and I definitely appreciated the reference to um uh you know thomas nagel and his classic essay you know what is it like to be the batman um but it's just to be a bat it's definitely just to be a bat <laughs> <laughs> i feel like you could with that like get a bunch of essays by famous philosophers and then like write them for grade schoolers and so instead of what is it to be a bat what is it to be batman hmm. mommy mommy i can never understand your perspective what's qualia um <laughs> Uh, yeah. So, so yeah, I mean, obviously like a solid half of this chapter is just talking about art, um, which of course, Sam made me think about uh, you and my, and and our respective women's conversation uh, mm -hmm. about art. Um, so I sort of want to just to start talking about um, there, because there were several like very good um, passages and lines as he's, as he's want to do. Uh, and, you know, one being that, you know, that, that art is meant to be alive, something that you can have a dialogue with, but then 
another criticism that I don't think we talked about in our original conversation is just how so much modern art is fragmented and intentionally so. It's it exists on a plane of vision that is in front of everything else. It doesn't go mm-hmm. deeper than itself. It's like a I don't know. Yeah, like I mean, I mean, fragment is is a, is a fantastic word. It, mm-hmm. it's, it's like a part of a spaceship flying overhead, crashed through the roof of the museum, and and that is just there, like daring you to stare at it. But there's nothing that there's nothing behind it. There's no vision to you know that that you can look through it. It's, yeah, it's I mean, I, to be fair, like I mean, maybe it's just because I fall into like left hemisphere tropes often, um, which doesn't bode well for me. But uh, I, I, for one, enjoy looking at Picasso occasionally just because it's he he, he does like pull out, uh, especially his bits on musicians, where he pulls out like the relevant pieces of the musician, the musician's lips, the, the, the pieces of the instrument. And I don't know, I find it I find it fascinating from a left hemisphere perspective. That I never understood before reading this this um, bit why I enjoyed looking at that jumbled mess. Um, the. The idea of it being uh, two dimensional or flat, or there being no depth or whatever, I the another word I think you could use for it would be imminent. Um, and I'm thinking here of uh, Taylor's imminent frame, and maybe maybe that's one thing that Taylor is picking up on. And I guess hopefully we'll we'll know if and when we uh, eventually read it. But he is noticing this idea of everything being flat, um, which McGilchrist might just say, "Yeah, that's the left hemisphere that's taken over." Um, and 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 also flat. Um... The, the flatness isn't just it's not just flat in a dimensional sense it's also flat in a time sense because so much mm-hmm. of modern art like as it exists as a message as a statement of some kind is you know trapped in a particular moment it's you know prescient to the current political conversation or whatever but it doesn't go it's not going to last it's it's not something that that has um i mean maybe it's very much in in tune with the modern world in that it, it's it it's passing and it will pass. It's consumer art, really, mm-hmm. um, which then just reminds me of of the whole um, thing. I'm sure we've we've talked about it before, but like you know, to be a civilization that builds cathedrals, you can't be a civilization that's attempting to build cathedrals. You have to be aiming at it eternity, and as a byproduct, you build a cathedral. The line from that that sort of lines up with that argument in his chapters on 409, when he says, you know, in the process of creation, the artist's plane of focus needs to be somewhere beyond and through the work of art, not just on it's being art otherwise it becomes less than art and then a little bit later down put that way it is not that different from any human relationship i might regard mother Teresa in a way that would worry me if i believed it was also the way she saw herself in other words there's a level of the artists have to be the ones that are looking beyond but the moment that artists are are seeing themselves as pure artists doing art that's when you start getting this like weird uh, self uh referential loop that you know creates the meaning heavy um statement or the explicit meaning heavy statements that just don't have any staying power don't have any depth to them um the fragments i think uh in the first part of a canonical for Leibowitz, brother francis um is illuminating a manuscript and has a brief uh kind of a, a moment where he realizes that uh i think at then that at then blessed eventually saint Leibowitz was not thinking of himself when he was writing this manuscript that they considered holy he wasn't like he was completely selfless but it is the duty of those who came after him to point to his life and show how great he was um mm. and in a similar way yes if, if mother Teresa regarded herself as like this fantastic you know titan of a of a saint uh we might we should probably think less of her but she didn't she saw beyond herself and therefore we were able to see her for the saint that she was uh mm-hmm. actually has she been canonized I believe so yes okay yes for the saint that she was um the art for art's sake reminded me of its uh i'm not sure if it'd be a corollary but um art uh, all art is political um have you guys heard that that statement before i've heard that mm-hmm. yeah it, it just and it strikes me as a a different mode of viewing art but still a very left hemisphere mode it, it um and i think maybe Wilkers did um get into it as far as uh like rs propaganda um but i think that statement isn't exp- expressly like all art belongs only to the state as political but like the artist is supposed to be making these grand political statements which strikes me as still very subversive to art in general yeah the idea I mean, that based- Oh, oh, go ahead. Go, no, go on, go on. Well, I was just going to say, like, yes, because basically what it says um, is that either your art is explicitly pushing the a political message, 
And it's either the right political message or propaganda, which is always funny how it works out that way. Or you're choosing not to engage in politics, in which case that's a political statement Mm -hmm. um, and probably puts you on the wrong side as well. So, yeah. And and just the idea, like art is something to be manipulated or to, it is a tool to manipulate others, Um, which, yeah, the, uh, the left hemisphere manipulates the, the, or grasps um, the, the right hemisphere. I forget what, it's equal opposite is, but embraces or is drawn towards. And that actually leads right into, I think, probably, I think I had two favorite parts of this chapter. But one of the the first favorite part is um, talking again about messages in art. Uh, and the line is uh, talking about how um, critics of modernism or, or modernists viewing modernist art. He says that there's there are sort of two tendencies of um, people viewing modernist art that tends to sort of obscure the inherent problems with it. And uh, they are, uh, quote, the first is a willingness to accept an explicit manifesto or message. Again, as in the Enlightenment, as a substitute for imaginative experience. This is often apparently coded message, which thereby flatters the decoder. We see art where we have nothing more than a text. The other tendency complements it. In the absence of a message, we tend to stare until it is freighted with meaning. It is rather like the projection we make into a Rorschach blot. We mistake our lonely monologue for a dialogue, end quote. And that, for me, just encapsulated absolutely so much of stuff I encountered in undergrad, particularly in the... Um, in the halls of, of English major and people in, in interpreting texts there, not even art, but also in the theology classes and just people like having these lonely monologues that when they thought they were having dialogues because they're, because they think they have the magic decoder ring and, you know, they're flattering themselves as these inheritors of Gnostic secrets and decoding because someone told them about Marxist alienation or something. And they think they suddenly have the key to, to the universe. And yeah, anyway, I, I think he hits it right on the head there. Mm-hmm. On, on the note of theology, I was actually kind of surprised that McGill, McGilchrist um, at least lightly accused uh, spiritual texts or like holy books as being more left hemisphere in that they are trying to quantify the un- unquantifiable. Uh, unquantifiable. Um, they're trying to impart a, a an experience or a mode of being or some sort of Gnostic in the sense of like, this is not, well, no, it's not a secret teaching it, it, or a secret knowledge. It's a secret, I suppose, way of being and spiritual texts. They, they, the word cannot, I guess, ironically enough, the word cannot convey the word, capital W. Uh, and even, and to an extent, I, I'm actually pretty sympathetic with um, his idea in that you can read the Bible as much as you want. Or if, you know, if you're a Muslim, you can read the Quran or what have you, uh, Hindu for the Upanishads. You can read all you want, and that's not necessarily going to make you a better person. In fact, you know, you can make you a pretty wretched person. Um, the idea is you have to, you have to, uh, all the all the cliches come out. You have to live in that certain way. You have to, you have to be a Christian. You can't simply read the text. Um, and so I, I was surprised that um, he kind of launched. It, I mean, it wasn't this massive assault on religion, but it, this was kind of the first negative thing I heard him speak about. Um, like religious texts. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't think it was unjustified, but I think I was just surprised. Well, also one could say this is this is being apologetic about this, um, but one could say that it comes to how you use the text, and that mm-hmm. that's not an inherent problem in the text, especially given I. I mean, all I know is Torah, and then by the extension, the Christian Bible. But I mean, both of those are very clear that this is not this is not the end all be all. You can't just read this and understand everything. Yeah. So I mean, I'm not sure about the Quran, but as far as I know, I think it's more. I think that it also gets at that. It's more of a submission. It's like this is the patterns to submit to mm-hmm. then to then understand. You still that, need you to know? go beyond the text. Exactly. So, but I think that many people misread that. I mean. He is correct that it's very easy to misread the text um, uh, and, 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 you know, lose that, dare I say, liturgical aspect that extends from the text, the tradition I, that comes from it. I mean, that's, that's got to be one of the biggest problems with Sola Scriptura is you have, you only have the text now. You have nothing else. Um, yeah, that might be strawmanning it a bit, but I mean, it's in well, the name Sola Scriptura. You pretend well, like you have nothing but the text. You pretend but, that you have everything yeah. else, but then you have everything else you haven't enumerated, which, I mean, may or may not be a problem, but I, but, so then that might be even a left hemisphere mode of being is wanting to make sure that we actually at least categorize, you know, everything that we have. Okay, we're going off the text, we're going off the tradition, we're going off of reason. 
mm-hmm. we're going off of experience, wrestling quadrilateral, but you're still laying it all out there and excluding other things. Mm-hmm. I, I I think I'm just looking at the part now, and I think that the um the problem is sort of almost less with well, it is an inherent problem with language, which is just something that he said before, is that it's the function of language to make the uncommon common in that there's a limited number of words to describe a rich personal experience that will never be duplicated by any person to person, but you still have to word use the word love and you know my my it took my breath away when I saw her walk down the aisle and there's that you know that's been said a a billion times and it's going to be boring after a while um and it's going to sound banal but we all we know or or hope to know that it's true also uh his 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 line is um we confuse novelty with newness no one decided not to fall in love because it's been done before or because its expressions are banal they're both old as the hills and completely fresh in every case of genuine love, end quote, um, which is just to say that, uh, you know, the texts have this downside, especially in a modern age where we're so, you know, conditioned to search for novelty or confuse, as he says, confuse novelty for for uh, new news, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Oh, uh, so um, unless someone else has some other part that they really wanted to get to. Well, uh, there's was, there was one little bit I wanted to mention. Go for but- it. It, well, well, it was just that his, you were talking about uh, languages being very left hemisphere, right? And having, forcing you to fall into conventions. But I really loved his treatment of poetry, of how of modern poetry. It's how he's like, look, it, it, it felt like he was um, appreciating the emissary nature of the left hemisphere at its finest. Where he's like, look, it's helping to use these forms and to constrain the author just a little bit by these forms. And it is allowing imagination to run wild. And we're seeing T.S. Eliot and all these other amazing poets um, create phenomenal works. I, I thought that, that his, his, he's not just going on this crusade against the left hemisphere. It really shows that he's genuinely sifting through it and figuring out where is it helping us? Where, where have we gone wrong? And how, mm-hmm. how do we get back from there? Which I, I, I really appreciated that. Yeah, no, I actually really like that, that part as well, where he, he said that, like, kind of just reminded us, yes, the master needs his emissary. There's a reason we have the emissary. It's just mm-hmm. emissary, the emissary needs to know its place. Yep, absolutely. Yeah. And I would just mention, and, and Stephen, feel free to throw something into, uh, much as Sam did, there were two other parts that I would just very quickly mention. The first is his just short treatment of um, modernism and futurism and sort of just the tendencies of futurism being this desire to the future that's becomes obsessed with um, novelty, strangeness, youth, and violence, which is just, I mean, I see that so much in our society and it's a little bit scary and makes me want to learn about the futurists uh, the futurists rather so i can learn how to beat them it sort of like the thing that it makes me think of instinctively is like all of the people wanting to move to to new york and uh, no offense sam uh but but like you know the, the his his line is um uh you know the focus on youth, the focus on violence, uh, an obsession with strangeness, sometimes bordering on the perverse, and a fascination with the amoral restlessness of modern urban life. Um, it's just like, ooh, ooh, I don't, that makes me feel uh, not happy about anything. And then the final thing that I would just mention is with schizophrenia and, and modernism um, becoming curiously, both being curiously deficient in so-called common sense. Um, and, and I sent these the, these boys a whole bunch of screenshots because I'm reading Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton again. And he basically summarizes that whole section of the chapter and in, in a much more uh, less clinical, but uh, much more entertaining way, I would say, just that the the rational um, world, the modern, you know, a fully rational world is, you know, perfectly understandable and complete. Everything has one to three explanations and it's a full cosmos. It's just very, very small. Uh, it's a narrow e- universality or a cramped e- eternity. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't have time to discuss that fully, but go look it up yourself. Uh, Steven, do you have any last call outs from this chapter? I think I think one of the things, um, kind of more applicable note, I think we had an article um, probably a year or so ago, The, the Rats of Nim, uh, and the um, kind of the... They had everything. They and they kind of had a perfect simulation, maybe not perfect, but a simulation of the urban environment had everything much less like Miguel Chris commentary on kind of modern consumeristic or bourgeois society. And then they just completely fell apart. Um, it was just watching the self-destruction of a society. And a lot of the, the things he described as modernism, this, this uh, homelessness or this uh, 
the, the urbanization, the mobility, it really was kind of intimidating watching him describe uncannily our our society and our, our situation, which I mean, of course he is explicitly doing that. He is, he's doing this for a purpose, but I mean, and then compa- comparing it to schizophrenia. Uh, yeah, it was, it was pretty intimidating. Um, it definitely didn't give me the warm fuzzies and it did kind of call back to um, the rats of Nim and kind of their, their collapse uh, in the midst of all they could have ever asked for their society collapsed. And certainly hope that's not the same for us. Wait, that article you're talking about was about rats. I thought it was about Chicago. Anyway. Hey. hey! Um. All right. All right. All right. Uh, but speaking of having everything and it all just collapsing around you, uh, my article this week, uh, is a rather hastily selected article from Polygon called "Crowdfunding is Killing Board Game Expansion." And the basic premise or the argument of the piece is that, uh, crowdfunding is ruining big, giant board games because, uh, board games that are coming out for the first time get all these stretch goals so they add expansion after expansion and people buy it all at once but it's not fully play tested because it just takes thousands of hours you know with infinite people trying to break the game across you know the whole world um and it ruins the natural cycle of board game improvement and we're all going into a very dark place and we talked about it a little bit and i'm we all more or less think that it's a little bit overstated or at least the good games are still good and the bad game or you know the games that this guy's talking about are few and far between but I'll just run through it and then uh and then we'll uh discuss. So first he notes the influence of crowdfunding on board games. Um and and, and I would note some of my favorite games at present are they either got their start or many of their expansions through Kickstarter through other crowdfunding um uh things and I think we all are more or less in the same spot. And I just looked up some numbers off the top of Google, um, and the money that these Kickstarter board games pull in is is pretty insane. Like twelve million dollars for one game, nine million dollars for Exploding Kittens, which was extremely underwhelming if you played it. Uh, Four million dollars for a Bloodborne game. That's sort of the focus of this article. So it could be he's just very bitter about this particular instance. Uh, you know, four million dollars for a Gloomhaven, uh, Gloomhaven second printing. Spirit Island got just under a million for its latest expansion. Root got one point seven and two million for its latest two expansions, re- respectively. Uh, and I would note that uh, eighty eighty of those dollars were mine. Eighty of those dollars were Sam's. Uh, now I would note that those last two that I mentioned, Root and Spirit Island, these are the expansions, not the core games. So these actually don't address the argument that he's making in this article, which is that they're coming out all at once. And that's actually an example of how things are supposed to happen, where it's like, okay, it's, you know, two months on past the game's release, you've gotten feedback, you want to change interactions in this way, you're going to update the rules a little bit, you're going to update the text on some cards, you'll add in some expansion, some new modes, and then you'll ship it out and give everyone a new fresh experience and fix whatever the problems were with the original. Uh, but what the art- what the author is concerned about is sort of a collapsing of this timeline, where everything happens right when the game is first announced, thought about, instead of happening o- o- over the course of, you know, three iterations over six years or ten years. Um, uh, you know, in other words, the a- expansions all come with the initial package as stretch goals because everyone has infinite money, I guess, and so everything just gets funded right at once. Uh, he says, uh, quote, This is how it's supposed to work. A game is released and it isn't perfect. And then the designers put their heads down and release an expansion, nudging the games that much closer towards excellence. But this virtuous cycle has been occurring less and less in the era of crowdfunding, end quote. Um, And he he, he says in particular, like the most recent rounds of big box games that are highly complicated, you know, many hours of gameplay, huge monetary and time investments are all showcasing this bad trend. They have bloated deliveries. they're They're loosening this feedback loop. Um, uh, so I'll, I'll stop there and, and, and I'll, and I'll say, I guess, what are your guys's impressions? If he's right, is, is, is he right in a very limited, uh, extent or just, you know, you guys read the article. What do you think? I'm just imagining a, a poor listener out there who is zoned out for like 30 seconds as we pivoted from McGillicrist and through your article title and just got back in right when you were going into board games and they're like, what just happened? Is this a metaphor for something or like, yeah. So sorry, listener, but it's actually a good article. I I like that. It was. I mean, it was a well written article. I think. I I think it, it's kind of. It strikes me as someone needed an issue to take and chose board games. Like I'm sure that it, I'm sure that there have been a number of examples of like yeah, rushed development or really bad um, improvement feedback cycle or what have you. But like board games have are experiencing a massive renaissance, the likes of which we haven't seen. I mean. We went from, what, 15, 20 years ago, like, Monopoly being the number one board game, and, like, that's why people hated board games. Like, we had Monopoly Life and Clue, and then, like, a few other 
random games that nobody actually enjoyed playing. And there was um, the Dark Ages where everyone liked Catan and, you know, sort of like the plebs still like Catan as like, oh yeah, like I like board games. I'm a board game person. I play Catan with no expansions. <laughs> to be fair, I still like Catan, but yes, there are much better games. Um, yes. And so it's, it's it, a good intro. Yeah, yeah, it's a it's a nice gateway. RNG as a core mechanic are bad. Sorry, what what was that? I said boo. Games with RNG as a core mechanic are bad. Yeah, that's fair. Um, well, wait, terraforming Mars has RNG, just not rolling dice, but ra- drawing the right cards. No, it's not numbers. It's card generation. Totally different. Oh my gosh. Um, I completely. Uh, so in 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 general, I I buy that that happens. I just don't see it happening all that much because we have plenty of amazing board games if anything crowdfunding strikes me as being it, it like all of a sudden people have a more direct line into what people want and games that sound terrible aren't going to get any like any funding and so they have high incentive to make sure that they're coming out with quality content yeah i mean i do i do understand his problem that he sees is like well i, I mean i i could under, I, I think the bloodborne one is particularly critiquable because it's like it's a nine box game based off of a video game that people were obsessed with and so it's just so many layers down of problems um and so i mean without going into like a full-on critique of capitalism i think that there's probably not much you can really extrapolate what he's saying yeah i mean i i I totally buy that that like yeah nine add-on expansions it primarily if you are viewing expansions as way of fix as a way of fixing a broken game which incidentally i i don't actually buy that interpretation, uh, but if you were, yeah, but if you were viewing it as that, then yeah, I mean, a- adding nine expansions right off the get go is kind of dumb. Uh, but also, expansions are just ways of doing just that, expanding the game. Yeah, I mean, I liked what, or I didn't like. I guess what I was saying earlier before we started recording, I think maybe Craig got it first time, but it's that this guy sounds like somebody who like plays exclusively war of the ring and the like 1980s dune game and calls that like quality that's exactly what board gaming should look like um and really he's just i don't know maybe he hates himself i don't know well he can sit alone in his dark basement filled with like vintage monopoly uh uh exclusives he just spent you know like 800 dollars on uh, the Bloodborne thing or whatever, and just got really burned. And he's like, "That just was my got, got beat in the first game." game. <laughs> I I could have gotten root with all expansions, and I got this garbage. Um, no, no. The problem is he had he's gotten all these games, but he has no idea if they're fun because he doesn't have any friends to play them with. Oh, if, if you're listening and you wrote this, I I'm sorry. I just thought it was a funny burn. I don't actually think that about you. All right, uh, quick quick uh, thing off the top of your head. Uh, each person, what would you say, if you just had to name one board game, not not necessarily your favorite, you're not held to it, but just one game that's like, yeah, this is this is my game. Uh, what is it, Steven? Spirit Island. Or, or Eldritch Horror, one of those two. Sam. Root. Okay, and I would say Terraforming Mars. Uh, good. It's a good mix there. Um, but yeah, yeah. I mean, I, we, play, we play those three all the time. So we play those and all three of those are extremely different style of board game. You've got my, both of mine were cooperative. Sam's yours is like explicitly competitive. And well, then it's Bre- a war game that's cute, cutened up. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. And then Brevin's is competitive, but definitely not in a warlike way. You're more just like manipulating the board. And yeah, setting up combinations, but it's like four-player engine It's also an engine building. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Building, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. So really, no, I I agree that this article is somewhat ha- hastily chosen, but I just wanted an excuse to talk about board games, and we don't really have to take his, you know, angry rant conclusions about the state of the industry seriously. Speaking of rants, uh, Sam, what do you got for us? I um I've been struggling to figure out a rant, but I think okay, I'm planning a wedding right now. Why do why do people, friends, family members, or not friends, never friends, family friends and family members find the need to invite themselves? I just don't under I don't understand. And <laughs> Brevin's Brevin's smirking right now because he understands. Like I don't understand what I, I just I just don't know what goes through someone's mind that is like, oh yeah, I'll be I'll be there. And and you say, well actually no you won't. And they're like, but why? I just, I just don't understand it. And it's, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's worse with the family members who are offended at different members of their, of the family are not even being invited. People who won't come in the first place aren't being invited. 
and it just I don't know. I'm it's it's more bemused than a rant. I just don't even know what what's going on in these people's heads. Anyway, I definitely missed the chance when you said I'm planning a wedding to say, "Oh, really? Who for?" That's so nice of you. Oh, uh, I had the same thought. Um, yeah, uh, but anyway, for for my rant, uh, mine's a, a little bit more zen. Um, so I I have I have one one question for you, Sam and Stephen. Uh, y'all y'all ready to get grill pilled? Because uh, it's 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 grill time, boys. Uh, one one podcast that I I listen to, uh, and one of the hosts who's generally like a very reliable bastion of common sense, uh, had the absolute goddamn audacity to criticize grilling as an inferior cooking mechanism. He said it's like unavoidably gross and dirty. It's bad because all the fat drops down to the bottom and it flares up and burns the meat. And I say shame on him and shame on you, Sam, for agreeing with him. Resign, okay? I just had a great. Little outing with some friends, with a reading group, got to do the manliest of all activities, grilling. Standing around the grill with the boys, the pile of bergs, pile of dogs, all there just to absolutely burn the heck out of. You know, I haven't, like, fully graduated to, like, bloody meat and ribs and all that nonsense, but it's still a very good time. And, you know, like, knock the middle class, suburb, grill dad life all you want. I don't know. It's it's uh, it's kind of hard to beat. Uh, so I am I am looking forward to some more good summer grill times with friends. And anyone who thinks I'm wrong is bad should feel bad. To defend myself here, I was I was shaking my head or, or nodding at him. So I was nodding because he's absolutely right. The 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 um well he's right about half of it. The flames flare up and catch your meat on fire. It's dirty, and that's what's the great part about it. I I love grilling. Yeah, no, I was I know he's right. Like the dirty, you get a little bit of dirtiness on there from like burgers from last summer. It's amazing. It's history. It's tradition happening all inside yeah. that little metal Sad. canister. Turn gross meat is a good thing. <laughs> yes, it's part but of the no, aesthetic. I mean, yeah, no, I at, at, at the fellowship, I totally it, it took on the the grill the grill dad position and would regularly grill things, and it was. It was the best. It was the best. Now, some of my fondest memories uh, of my old house and roommates were were all summer spent grilling, and then the HOA shut us down because we weren't allowed to have a cold grill. They were they were monsters. Monsters. Yeah, well, no, I was. I, yeah, we had very strong feelings about our HOA. I'm I'm very happy that both of y'all are grill pilled. Um, that that makes me yes. very happy. Uh, but Stephen, I'm sure something makes you angry. Oh yes. Um. So this is somewhat of a corollary to a previous rant I had about my neighbors. Um, but just in general, I know this happened in Seattle, but it just seems in Grand Rapids, this is just such a common thing that people just, maybe it's just the air I'm in or whatever, but people just like revving their engines incredibly loud. And I mean, like, this isn't the occasional, like, eh, once or twice a week I'll hear it. This is like, no, several times an hour, I will hear people just like absolutely burning rubber down the street and in a neighborhood residential area where like there are kids playing constantly and they're flying by at like 40 or 50 miles an hour in downtown city, people on motorcycles just absolutely disrupting conversation by slamming their pedal to the metal. It's just like that made you look cool in high school. Sort of. Now it's just, you're, you're screaming about uh, your complete uh, lack of masculinity and overcompensate compensation. And frankly, you're small. Um, so I just, if, if any, any of our listeners enjoy, uh, the loud sound of your engine and the feeling of sudden acceleration, just either buy a better muffler or rethink your life. Damn. That's some, that's some spicy stuff there, sir. I hear it. I I love your rants. (laughs) (laughs) I hear it all the time. I wanted to stop it. (laughs) I I was at church yesterday and during the reading, like somebody did the same thing, like sped by and like, it was so loud. And the reader literally like she stopped and she was just like, because you couldn't even hear her over the car. And it was a good 10 seconds. And it was just like, what on, I don't it know. It contributes nothing. It And even for the person, it's like, do you think people think you're cool for this? Do you think we all admire you or like... Do you, do you think you're communicating to us, guys? I have sex all the time. Like, no, you're not. You're communicating that you are a small man. That's my rant. That's all I got, guys. I'm just trying to wonder, actually, because now I, I, I like want to apply apply McGillchrist's analysis of like novelty and the stare. Like, it doesn't invite a look. It invites a stare of of rage that like objectifies you, but like I don't know, maybe affirms your existence somehow or something. I don't know. It's just like, look at me, please. I exist. Please, please. I don't know. I mean, maybe it's the shock. 
you are in in effect doing shock art. You are drawing attention and and trying. Well, it's a violent sound. And here I would quote per- Percy in saying that violence is one of the ways of reentrance. Mm. Uh, so per- perhaps they are attempting to do violence upon the ears because then at least they will be affirmed that they exist. Yep. Yep. That is. Uh. That sounds as as true as as anything uh, is. Um. So on that note, uh, for everyone here at the Problem with Reading Podcast. I'm Brevin. I'm Steven. I'm Sam. And uh, we'll see you around on the muffler side, I guess. <laughs> Sam is laughing because he's looking at us. What if you guys can say something else? I don't have to do this every time. And no, you, no, you do. We tried, we tried doing it otherwise, and it was terrible. I think we tried having the, like... I say something witty after, but then I never know what to say. And so, yeah, I just rather, you know, here. Also, yeah. uh, Stephen, um, I just want to throw throw a, a pronunciation at you. Oh, yeah. Um, Uh-oh. Phallus. Is it phallus? Definitely phallus. phallus. I'm going to beep that so they think you said something else. <laughs> I appreciate it.